Hello and welcome to DE Classified, a podcast showcasing the history of destroyer escorts. Each month, a member of the USS Slater's education crew will highlight a specific destroyer escort and share the stories of the sailors who served aboard these trim but deadly ships. My name is Liam Mitchell. For today's episode, we will be diving into the history of one of Slater's sister ships in the Cannon class, and one of the more infamous destroyer escorts of history, USS Eldridge. Although seemingly an ordinary vessel, the story of Eldridge is one marked by intrigue, mystery, and conspiracy. Stick around to the end of the episode to hear the baffling story behind one of history's greatest conspiracy theories as we uncover the truth behind the tale. But before we discuss the conspiracies, let's first discuss the known facts of the ship. The ship was named in honor of Lieutenant Commander John Eldridge Jr. He was born October 10, 1903, to John Eldridge Sr. and Lillian Mormon Eldridge in a small town of Buckingham, Virginia, just 70 miles east of Richmond. He was the oldest of three boys. His younger brother Thomas was born in 1906 and passed away in 1998. His younger brother William was born in 1911 and passed away in 1931. John and his family were members of Maysville Presbyterian Church, a local congregation that still exists today. Visitors of the town of Buckingham can still pray at the very same altar that Eldridge himself once prayed at. While attending Buckingham High School, Eldridge became infatuated with the Navy and dreamed of a life at sea in the service of his country. After graduating from high school, he studied electrical engineering for one year at the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia, before being appointed to the U.S. Naval Academy in 1923. There as a midshipman, he was a member of the wrestling team and even participated in company football. He graduated with honors in 1927. After graduation, he remained at the Naval Academy for a short course in aviation, reporting aboard USS Pennsylvania the flagship of Division III. Later, he attended flight training at Naval Air Station Pensacola, a U.S. Navy base affectionately known as the Cradle of Naval Aviation. Pensacola remains an active base today. It is the initial training base for all Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard officers pursuing a designation as Naval Aviator, and serves as the home of the United States Navy Flight Demonstration Squadron, also known as the Blue Angels. On the 31st of August, 1929, John Eldridge married Dorothy Elizabeth Greenwood in a small ceremony in Buckingham. Afterwards, they moved together to Norfolk, Virginia, so Eldridge could be closer to his naval duties. They never had any children. After his death, Eldridge's memory would be preserved by his wife, his brother, and his brother's children. In December of 1929, Eldridge was designated a naval aviator and assigned to Scouting Squadron 2B aboard USS Saratoga with Aircraft Squadron's Battle Fleet. Over the next decade, John Eldridge would continue his flight training at a number of different bases across the country, including Norfolk, San Diego, and another stint at Pensacola. He served for two years on board USS Mississippi, 
first as a member of Utility Squadron 2F, and later with Patrol Squadron 3F. In August of 1939, he was assigned to Patrol Wing 5, and later Scouting Squadron 71, both aboard USS Wasp, an aircraft carrier attached to Norfolk Naval Base that was operating in the South Pacific. While there, he assumed command of the squadron in September of 1941, and remained in this capacity until his unfortunate death. On November 2, 1942, U.S. Army Air Force B-17 bombers reported a large Japanese naval force of 17 destroyers approaching Guadalcanal. Despite heavy rain, Eldridge volunteered to lead a bombing run against the force, with two other dive bombers joining him. While attacking the enemy, his aircraft was shot down and crashed off the southeastern end of Santa Isabel Island in the Solomon Island Archipelago. Natives on the island reported witnessing the crash. The following day, they pointed rescue crews in the direction of the crash. The rescue crew discovered the wreck amongst the coral reef and sent divers to attempt to recover the bodies. They were able to free the body of Eldridge's rear gunner, aviation radioman third-class George Yannick. Unfortunately, the divers could not retrieve the body of Eldridge from the wreck. He was then given a formal burial ceremony at sea. Eldridge was known by his shipmates as an effective pilot capable of delivering consistent results. In August of 1942, he successfully led his squadron on a series of dive bombing runs that obliterated Japanese positions just in front of the marine landing area on Gavutu Islands in the Solomons. This cleared the path for the Marines, who safely landed and were able to secure the island. In October of 1942, Eldridge led his squadron on an early morning attack on Japanese ships near the Solomons, despite the adverse weather conditions. Although he was eventually forced to land and wait for rescue, Eldridge was able to severely damage enemy float planes and aircraft positions. After being rescued, he then led another attack out of Guadalcanal against more enemy ships in the area, causing massive fires and extensive damage to the Japanese fleet. He even sank a Japanese destroyer. These actions are just a few examples of a lifetime spent as a highly trained and highly skilled naval aviator, and highlight the incredible achievements of a war hero and a true patriot. After Eldridge was killed in action, he was awarded the Navy Cross, the Gold Star, and the Distinguished Flying Cross for his heroic actions in battle. To commemorate his ultimate sacrifice in the name of American freedom, he was also posthumously awarded the Purple Heart. He additionally received the Combat Action Ribbon, the United States Aviator Badge Navy, the World War II Victory Medal, the American Campaign Medal, the Navy Presidential Unit Citation, the Navy Good Conduct Medal, the Asiatic Pacific Campaign Medal, and the Navy Expeditionary Medal. To honor this incredible American and celebrate his heroic wartime achievement, USS Eldridge DE-173 was laid down on February 22, 1943 by Federal Shipbuilding and Dry Dunk Company in Newark, New Jersey. It was sponsored by John Eldridge's wife, Jesse Greenwood. Founded during World War I as a subsidiary of U.S. Steel, 
the Federal Shipbuilding and Dry Dock Company originally built ships for the United States Shipping Board to aid the war effort. During World War II, it continued operations as part of the Emergency Shipbuilding Program. It built numerous destroyers, destroyer escorts, and merchant ships, as well as a handful of light cruisers. After the conclusion of the war, the yard was closed, and it now operates as a part of River Terminal, a foreign trade zone. USS Eldridge was commissioned on August 22, 1943, under the command of Lieutenant Commander Charles R. Hamilton. As a cannon-class destroyer escort, Eldridge ran on a diesel-electric tandem motor drive, capable of doing up to 21 knots. At 12 knots, Eldridge could achieve a maximum range of 10,800 nautical miles, or just over 12,400 miles. That distance is roughly the equivalent of sailing from Los Angeles to Shanghai, China, and back again. Eldridge had a displacement of 1,620 tons when full, a length of 306 feet and a beam of 36 feet 10 inches, with a 10-foot 6-inch draft. Like all Cannon-class destroyer escorts, Eldridge had a longer hull than the previous Everts-class, a characteristic feature carried over from the Buckley-class. For weaponry, Eldridge was pretty standard as compared to other Cannon-class destroyer escorts. She carried three 3-inch 50 caliber anti-aircraft guns, one 40mm gun, eight 20mm guns, three 21-inch torpedo tubes, one hedgehog projector, eight depth charge projectors, and two depth charge tracks. As with all destroyer escorts, this set of weaponry made Eldridge a fierce fighter against enemy aircraft and submarines capable of inflicting serious damage in defense of the fleet. The entirety of Eldridge's service in World War II was, by all definitions, fairly standard for a destroyer escort. Between January 1944 and May 1945, Eldridge was assigned to operations within the Mediterranean Sea. She performed the vital task of escorting men and materials to support Allied operations in North Africa and Southern Europe, and was well known in the busy ports of Spain, Tunisia, and Algeria. Eldridge performed nine such voyages to the Mediterranean and never lost a ship she was protecting. Interestingly, Eldridge actually went through a number of commanding officers, although little explanation has been found as to why. As I mentioned earlier, Eldridge was commissioned Lieutenant Commander Charles R. Hamilton in command. On April 21, 1944, command was transferred to Lieutenant Commander William Kent Van Allen of Albion, New York. He remained in this post until November 30, 1945, when Lieutenant Commander James M. Menire of Lubbock, Texas took command. He would then later be replaced with Lieutenant Junior Grade Rufus K. Guthrie who would command the ship until her final decommissioning. Over the years, these skippers would command roughly 200 sailors, 14 of whom were junior officers. Now after victory in Europe, Eldridge was reassigned to the Pacific and began the long voyage across the world. She reached New York City in late May and departed for the Panama Canal on May 28, 1945. While approaching Saipan in July, Eldridge picked up its first sonar contact and immediately attacked. 
No results were observed, however, and they continued onward to Okinawa, arriving there on August 7, 1945, one week before the end of the war in the Pacific. Following the order to cease operations against Japanese forces, Eldridge was assigned to continue escort duty of convoys on the saipan ulithi okinawa route and remained in this position until 1945. Finally sailing for home, she was decommissioned and placed in the reserve fleet on June 17, 1946, ready to begin the next chapter of her life. For her wartime service, Eldridge received the American Campaign Medal, the Asiatic Pacific Medal, the European Africa Middle East Campaign Medal with one battle star, and the World War II Victory Medal. Many casual observers of World War II history may hear that term that I just mentioned, one battle star, and often think to themselves that this ship didn't do much. This is related to a question I constantly get asked while giving tours aboard Slater. What did the ship actually do? Most people that ask this question are simply looking for exciting tales of great battles and hard-won victories, and I understand why. For most people, the events of World War II is told exclusively through the lens of battles and skirmishes through victory and losses in Hollywood. Now, I won't deny that these are the most exciting stories. After all, there is a reason that so many World War II movies are made. But the reality of destroyer escorts is much more complex than that and warrants a more detailed answer. In a handful of cases, destroyer escorts went toe-to-toe with enemy forces and engaged in that glorious battle. Their guns were booming, their depth charges launching, their torpedoes streaking off into the distance, all targeting enemy submarines, planes, or land targets. The best example of a DE that fought gloriously is undoubtedly USS Samuel B. Roberts, DE-413. We've mentioned this ship and her crew's efforts a few times in previous episodes, and soon a special episode of DE Classified will go into elaborate detail on the events surrounding that fateful final day of Sammy B's service. But for most destroyer escorts, life in World War II was much different and by comparison far less exciting. In the Atlantic theater of the war, destroyer escorts primarily protected merchant convoys going to and from the United Kingdom and the rest of Europe. In the Pacific theater, DE supported larger ships and their fleets by sweeping for mines, transferring mail and sailors, refueling the larger ships, and assisting in the defense of newly captured ports. It is important to remember that all DEs were ready for battle at a moment's notice, and were extremely deadly ships with well-trained crews. But due to their small sizes, DEs often found themselves on the outside of larger battles, often close enough to hear or see the battle taking place, but still outside the range of the guns. So it is important to note that while many destroyer escorts did engage in direct battle with the enemy, most battle stars earned by DEs were largely for actions performed in support of larger ships during the course of a battle. Now, life aboard Eldridge was tough, as it was for all sailors and soldiers fighting in the Second World War. Air conditioning, in the modern sense, was hardly even heard of at the time. This meant Eldridge could be extremely hot in the summer months, especially in the more tropical regions and the Pacific Ocean. 
Similarly, heating a steel ship is never an easy task. Conditions aboard Eldridge could be extremely cold in the winter months, especially in the North Atlantic. Regardless, every sailor was expected to perform his duties perfectly every day. Men remained on watch constantly, peering through binoculars or telescopes, searching for contacts. Radar men and sonar men sat staring at blank screens for hours, waiting for the smallest blips to appear on screen. The cooks and the bakers spent all day in the stifling galley, and any available men would soon be put to work scrubbing decks, chipping paint, and making general repairs. And don't forget the poor souls down in the ship's engine and motor rooms too. These rooms were suffocatingly hot, deafeningly loud, and the men would have to stand for hours observing the machinery and making sure it all ran smoothly. They went hours without even seeing the sun or breathing fresh air, all to ensure that Eldridge stayed afloat, doing her duty, and prepared for battle. To gain additional insight into life aboard USS Eldridge, I had the unique opportunity to communicate with Mark Johnson, whose father, Charles Benton Johnson Jr., served aboard Eldridge from 1945 to 1946 as a sonarman's second class. Mr. Johnson and his family have compiled his father's letters sent throughout the course of his service, and they graciously shared them with me to assist in the creation of this episode. In the collection, Charlie details the rough but manageable life aboard Eldridge. In a letter to his grandparents dated February 9th, 1945, Charlie says, quote, I will admit, I was mighty seasick the first couple of days, but I'm over that now. I'm always starved when chow time comes now, and I think I'm putting on some weight. The chow is good, but when we have a rough sea, it's hard for the cooks to cook, and it's hard to eat without spilling something all over yourself. This excerpt is a brilliant look into life aboard a DE. Sailors were well fed and healthy yet still always in danger and never quite comfortable. In a letter sent somewhere around the same time, Charlie tells his parents that, quote, We had a big inspection of all the ship's equipment by the division commander this afternoon. I can't say that I'll regret my experiences during the last few weeks. Had a lot of fun and my shipmates are really swell guys, especially the other sonarmen. This excerpt provides a wonderful window into the personal friendships developed by the sailors over the course of their service aboard DEs. Petty differences and rivalries were often overcome out of sheer necessity. The men looked past their differences and embraced each other as brothers. They shared meals together, slept in bunks on top of one another, and worked together 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. These friendships would develop quickly while at sea and many will remain strong well after the war. USS Eldridge is by no means unique in the situation, nor are destroyer escorts. There were hundreds of men on these ships, sometimes even thousands in the case of larger ships. With the threat of battle ever present and the fear of the unknown looming just around the corner, the men were almost forced into friendship. They supported one another, looked out for one another, and protected one another. They established relationships that supersede all struggle. 
In the end, the men only had each other, and they showed their appreciation for each other every chance they got. In 1949, a new program known as the Mutual Defense Assistance Program was signed into law by President Harry Truman with the goal of keeping America and its military allies well-armed and supplied against enemy threats. This threat was primarily the expansionism of the Soviet Union. With the formation of NATO around the same time, the Western democratic world refocused its efforts on curtailing the expansion of communism from the Soviet Union. Armed with this new law, President Truman could make meaningful strides towards arming our allies along the Soviet bloc, making sure that communism stayed well behind its Iron Curtain. To this end, on January 15, 1951, USS Eldridge was transferred to Greece along with sister ships Ebert, Garfield Thomas, and our own beloved Slater, to begin service as the cornerstone of the newly rebuilt Hellenic Navy. Eldridge was redesignated as Leon, the Greek word for lion. Interestingly, each destroyer escort transferred to Greece received an animal-based name. Eldridge became Leon, or lion. Ebert became Irax, or hawk. Garfield Thomas became panther. And Slater became Iatos, or eagle. Collectively, these ships were known as the Wild Beasts. In this capacity, Eldridge, now called Leon of course, continued operations mainly as a patrol ship in the Eastern Aegean Sea, and was occasionally used for midshipman training. Leon was finally decommissioned on November 5th, 1992, and placed in the reserve fleet of the Greek Navy. Now interestingly, as the Destroyer Escort Sailors Association began their search for a viable destroyer escort to serve as a museum ship, they soon came across both Eldridge and Slater laid up in Greece. They decided that one of these two ships would serve as their museum. And in the end, the association chose Slater because she was more complete regarding viable equipment, preserved weaponry, and overall condition, whereas Eldridge was simply lacking in these areas. So the association chose to bring Slater back to the United States and Eldridge was then sold as scrap to V&J Scrap Metal Company. With that final stroke, the story of USS Eldridge came to a quiet conclusion. Or did it? For decades, many have claimed that Eldridge possessed a dark secret, one that could possibly change naval warfare forever. This secret has given rise to a legend, one surrounded by shadow and intrigue. You see, at the height of World War II, the powers of the world were desperate to come up with the next great technology that would give a militaristic advantage over all else. For the United States, the Soviet Union, and Nazi Germany, this meant heavily investing in atomic bombs. Here in the States, the brightest minds from around the country and even the world were called into work on the Manhattan Project, including Albert Einstein and Robert Oppenheimer. But according to the legend, what most of the public doesn't know is that Einstein himself was also working on something else entirely. 
The story goes that by applying his unified field theory of electromagnetism and gravity, Einstein discovered that one could use large electrical generators to bend light around an object via refraction, so that the object essentially becomes invisible to the naked eye. After confirming the results in his lab and this breakthrough was achieved, the military then realized that this could potentially reshape the war and plans were drawn up to test the device on a ship. Enter USS Eldridge. Legend has it that in the summer of 1943, USS Eldridge reported for duty to the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard. There, it was outfitted with all required equipment according to Einstein's specific instructions, and the experiments began. Although early in the testing stages, limited success was quickly achieved. Then, suddenly, one afternoon, the ship disappeared entirely during a large-scale experiment designed to cloak the entire ship. Some witnesses reported seeing a strange green fog in place of the ship. Others reported severe cases of nausea. When the ship finally reappeared a few minutes later, the horrors of the technology were witnessed. The sailors were fused into the metal structures and hull of the ship, and others that survived this horror had gone completely insane. As the story goes, the Navy clearly realized this was not an effective outcome of their new technology, and they set to work making adjustments to the necessary equipment. It took a few more months of calculations and small tests until the ship was ready again for another large-scale test. In October of 1943, the new tests were finally ready, and the cloaking technology was turned back on. What the witnesses described was even more baffling than the first tests. This time, not only was Eldridge rendered invisible, but it completely disappeared from the area in a flash of blue light. In that exact same moment, the ship was teleported to Norfolk, Virginia, some 200 miles away. After a few minutes there, Eldridge then teleported away from Norfolk and back to Virginia, in the exact same spot when the test began. According to some reports, the ship even went 10 minutes back in time. And as you can imagine, the results from this test were once again catastrophic for the crew. Almost all went insane. Some had their heads fused to the ship's hull, and some sailors even vanished altogether. With this, the Navy then concluded that, although the technology was viable in small amounts, the side effects on the sailors was too extreme, and the project was quickly shelved and classified at the highest level. In order to cover up the horrific outcome of these experiments, the sailors who took part were brainwashed and never seen again. The cloaking technology was removed from the ship and destroyed, and soon Eldridge, with the new crew, rejoined the rest of the American fleet serving in World War II, as if nothing had ever happened. Now the supposed truth of these Philadelphia experiments, as they became known, did not reach the public until 1955, when UFO researcher Morris K. Jessup received a number of letters from an unknown man 
calling himself Carlos Miguel Allende. His exact identity could not be identified at the time. In the letters, Mr. Allende claimed to have been a witness to the experiments aboard Eldridge in 1943. He described the vanishing and the teleportation of the ship, as well as the catastrophic fallout of the events upon the crew. Interestingly, Jessup just dismissed Allende as a crackpot, and there, he thought, was the end of it. Things changed, however, just two years later, when Jessup was contacted by the Office of Naval Research, who had recently received a parcel in the mail containing a copy of Jessup's book, with numerous annotations in the margins. In this copy of the book, it appeared that three separate individuals were corresponding via the margins regarding the contents of the book, commentating on different types of aliens that live in space. One of the three people then makes a reference to the Philadelphia experiment aboard USS Eldridge in order to support an argument. It was this reference which prompted the ONR to contact Mr. Jessup. After a lengthy investigation, ONR and Mr. Jessup concluded that all three people corresponding in the margins were actually just one person using three different pens. And that one person was none other than Carlos Allende. There, the story ended once more, and Carlos Allende was never heard from again. In 1979, author Charles Berlitz came across the Carlos Allende letters and published them under the title The Philadelphia Experiment, Project Invisibility, which claimed to be a factual account. In this book, he expanded on the details of the experiment, as well as the cover-up that followed, including other conspiracy theories regarding the U.S. government and Albert Einstein. The book was based almost entirely on the Carlos Allende letters, and featured significant contribution from infamous ufologist William L. Moore. After the publication of Berlitz's book, the story spread like wildfire throughout the United States. At a time when distrust of the government was at an all-time high, due to the recently concluded Vietnam War and the Watergate scandal, the American public ate the story up with the hunger of a starving beast. The story was even adapted into a 1984 time travel film called The Philadelphia Experiment, directed by Stuart Raffle and starring Michael Paré and Bobby DiCiccio. Filmed aboard USS Laffey DD-724 and Alan M. Sumner-class destroyer, the movie has now developed a cult following and is considered by many a classic of the 80s low-budget sci-fi genre. You may recognize the Laffey from its heroic actions in the Battle of Okinawa and its relentless survival in the face of numerous kamikaze attacks. Now, fans of the Philadelphia Experiment film can visit the Laffey in Charleston, South Carolina, where it has been preserved as a museum ship at Patriots Point. Fans of the Marvel Cinematic Universe may also recognize USS Eldridge from its brief appearance in Season 1, Episode 5 of the Disney Plus TV show Loki, starring Tom Hiddleston. In it, USS Eldridge is suddenly teleported into the void, and the crew soon opens fire on the massive evil entity that's attacking it. Now this is obviously very different from the legend itself, 
but it is still an exciting homage to the story and an interesting chapter in the legacy of Eldridge. Today, the legend of the Philadelphia Experiment is admittedly much less well-known by the general public than the more infamous conspiracies like Roswell, Area 51, and the Bermuda Triangle. But to ufologists and conspiracy theorists, the Philadelphia Experiment aboard USS Eldridge is some of the most compelling arguments for vast government cover-ups with some even claiming that the technology used was actually alien in origin. Now I admit that this story does have all the makings of an excellent sci-fi adventure, especially at the height of the sci-fi golden age of the 80s following Star Wars. But the truth, unfortunately, is much more simple. It's a hoax. Yep, you heard me right. The entire story is a hoax. In 1980, it was revealed that Carlos Allende was really Carl Allen of New Kensington, Pennsylvania, who had a long and established history of psychiatric illness, and most likely fabricated the story as a result of said mental illness. Furthermore, the timeline of the events simply don't add up with the official logbooks of Eldridge. As we know, all naval ships are required to keep an active and detailed logs of the ship's position and activities while in active service, and it's updated daily. According to the logbooks, Eldridge was on its first shakedown cruise to the Bahamas during the second experiment of October 1943. Even better, Eldridge wasn't even completely built when the first experiment supposedly took place. This is further supported by a number of veterans who served aboard Eldridge who gave interviews in the years that followed. They state that Eldridge never even made port in Philadelphia, not even after the supposed experiments. In 1996, the Office of Naval Research released a statement saying, ONR has never conducted investigations on radar invisibility, either in 1943 or at any other time pointing out that ONR was not even established until 1946, it denounces the accounts of the Philadelphia Experiment as complete science fiction. In the official opinion of the Navy, the tale most likely began when sailors discussed the degausser aboard Eldridge. A degausser was a common technology aboard World War II ships. It's a large device located in a motor room that sends electrical currents around the outside of the ship. This causes the ship's metal hull to temporarily lose its magnetic properties, allowing the ship to become, quote-unquote, invisible to magnetic minds. This process, known as degaussing, utilizes basic principles of electromagnetism and is still taught in physics classrooms around the country. So then, it is entirely possible that this story of turning a ship quote-unquote invisible to magnetic minds simply evolved into a story about turning a ship invisible entirely. This is the most plausible explanation as to the origins of Carl Allen's fantastical tales. Now admittedly, I was a little bit disappointed at the conclusion of this story. The thought of a ship vanishing and teleporting across the east coast is very exciting. 
and it seems like a technology that even modern militaries would be extremely interested in. And once you discover that this is no more than a hoax, it's easy to then think that the real history of Eldritch is, by comparison, kinda boring. But for those of us that love naval history, we realize that the wartime history of Eldritch is actually the true gem. It is the diamond in the rough, the true history worth remembering. So maybe the Eldritch didn't accomplish wondrous feats that break the laws of physics. Maybe she didn't completely rewrite military history and change the world, or travel through space and time and achieve the greatest technological breakthrough this world has ever known. But one fact remains resolute. The USS Eldridge was a capable and effective destroyer escort, one that served bravely and dutifully during history's greatest war. Her crew served admirably and with distinction, and every last sailor aboard was a war hero worth honoring. The conspiracies and the fairy tales may be fun to think about, but remember, the true war history of the Eldridge and its crew is the real story. One that must be told for generations to come. And we here at the USS Slater Destroyer Escort Historical Museum intend on doing just that. Thank you for listening to DE Classified. This podcast is brought to you by the Destroyer Escort Historical Museum aboard USS Slater. You can find a transcript of this episode, accompanying photos, and a bibliography at ussslater.org slash te-classified. I'd personally like to thank Mark Johnson and his family for their efforts in preserving the legacy of Charles Johnson Jr. and for graciously sharing his letters with me. Once again, I am Liam Mitchell, and I hope you join us next month to DE Classified, USS Samuel B. Roberts. <laughs>